0: Yes, we do. All right, Lyle. Yes. We have text messages.
1: We do. Mm-hmm. Let me just go to text messages real quick and see what has come through. Uh, let me see here. We did have this one. Uh, have a super blessed day. Looking forward to the show. I'm just in the tractor again for another day of planning. Thank God for you guys and for Faith FM. Let's go. Yeah. That's, that's Awesome. Go for it, listening to uh, Faith FM and the Tractors. Best thing to do while you're in the Tractors is to listen to Faith FM, so well done. <laughs> um, let me see what else we got here. Done that one. Yep. All right, let's have a look at this one. The Dead Sea Scrolls have cut short many disputes about the validity of the Bible and mm. errors in copies. The Lord's hand was there all the time. No excuses for unbelievers who are seeking the truth. This is a really good comment right here mm. because if you look at ancient manuscripts and you look at, say, Herodotus or if you look at um, you know, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars or any of these really, really ancient documents that have come down to modern times and you compare different copies that are separated by a thousand years or more, the variation in them is absolutely wild. Mm. I mean, it's off the charts. You've got different people, you've got different relationships, you've got different marriages, you've got so much stuff. That changes. And of course, uh, critics, you know, um, during the 1800s and so forth, they said, well, it's impossible to trust anything the Bible says because the oldest manuscripts that they had for the Old Testament for, for, were from like, you know, 1000 AD. Mm. And uh, they're saying, well, you know, these are manuscripts that were written way, way back during the time of Moses. How on earth would they have any possible validity? At all. And then they discovered manuscripts that were 2,000 years older than that and put them beside the ones they had, and they were word for word perfect. Mm. You know, just a slight punctuation mark here or there, but nothing of any significance in difference whatsoever at all. And some people are going, wow, those scribal rules worked really, really well. I would say, no. Wow, this is a book that was supernaturally preserved. Yes. Because it doesn't matter how good your scribal rules are, without supernatural preservation, you are never going to be able to get that level of accuracy over that many years without the Chinese whisper starting to work its way in.
0: Also because, like, the Bible was such a heavily persecuted book yes. itself. Yes. so So, dist- like, you know, no one was going out of their way to get rid of the, the history of, you know, The Gallic Wars or anything like that, whereas people were constantly trying to destroy the Bible pretty much for the last 2,000 years. And this is
1: what you've got. Why would you have a motivation to change the the history of the Gallic Wars? Like, you you don't. But if when you look at all of the different Jewish sects Mm -hmm. and then you look at all of the different Christian sects and every single one of them, they all want to have, you know, The Bible favour them. Yeah. And we even see that today where you have, you know, some uh, churches that, well, like, we're we're going to make our own translation of the Bible. Mm. You know, whenever a church comes along and is like, we're going to have our own translation of the Bible, it's like, yeah, no, I'm just (laughs) super sus. I am super (laughs) sus of that right there. I don't need to go there. Um, But when you, and, 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 but you've got so many groups. Mm. so many religious sects that are prepared to you know to, to 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 lay down their life for what they believe they have a lot of motivation to bring in changes nobody's nobody cares about the Gaulic wars its history and why change it and it's been changed tremendously mm. uh, but when it comes to the bible there's so much motivation to change you know, just change a little comma a little thing here there and everywhere and you can change the meaning of something to suit yourself mm. and yet that didn't happen so only supernatural divine intervention could ever uh, produce anything. I like guess that. the other
0: point that people bring up though, it's like even though it's so preserved, even though we have all these things, the claims that the Bible make are so wild and fantastical and whatnot that you know can it be trusted. And that's what we're doing here today, talking about the Bible to look at those claims, to see what the Bible
1: says. Absolutely. Can the Bible be trusted? The Bible can be trusted most assuredly. All right, so I think that's all we've got for text messages right now. Uh, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 12. i double check that. All
0: right, Genesis chapter 12. Taking a little bit. Man, we're just kind of jumping all over the place here We are, this, because I mean,
1: and this is the thing with This is the thing with the book of Genesis is that you've got the covenant with Abraham is repeated in a number of different places. And so um, to get a full picture of it, you've got to look at a whole bunch of different passages. So mm. we're going to look in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and see what uh, the Bible talks about here. Verse right. 1 and 2.
0: Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others.
1: Okay, so the covenant comes in three stages. This one reveals uh, the first stage of that covenant where God makes an approach to Abraham, gives him gives him a command, and then a promise. Mm. Uh, Go out to this land that I'm going to show you and I will make of you a great nation. He's living there in Ur. He's prosperous. He's doing very, very well for himself. He is comfortable. Why would he move? Uh, Particularly when you know he's going to an unknown land. It's like Mm. back then that's the equivalent of going to Mars. Yeah, wow. By the way, they flew that helicopter on Mars yesterday, eh? Yeah. That's (laughs) so cool. Better not get distracted. (laughs) Stay with the Bible study, Lyle. Stay with the Bible study. Do not be distracted by... Coolness, mm-hmm. um, and and so you know he does this, it's, and Abraham's like, yeah, I'll go to Mars, and he just sort of gets up and he leaves, and he was counted as a man of faith because of that, and uh, um and and then you've got you know more things that come into um that the become a feature of this whole covenant as you work your way through it, and so you've kind of got. Well, you've got you know God's approach to man, then you've got the call to obedience, and then the promise. So those are your, your three broad um, aspects of the covenant. We're going to look at it more deeply. Let, let's go over to Genesis chapter 15 now. We're actually going to start here in verse 1. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we can kind of pretty much do the whole chapter because the whole chapter is you know, God comes in in, in Genesis 12, he comes in Genesis 15, he comes in Genesis 17. Um, so many different places where God is repeating this covenant with Abraham. But let's look at it in chapter fifteen. Why don't you stop for us there? Uh, give us the first, you know, two or three verses.
0: The Bible says in Genesis chapter f- fifteen and verse one. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, "Do not be afraid, Abram. For I will protect you, and w- your reward will be great." But Abram b- replied, "O Sovereign Lord." What good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir.
1: Okay, so, yeah, your translation puts it a little bit differently. Mine sort of says, Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I, have, seeing I go childless? Mm. And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Mm. And so, in the King James version, it kind of you have Abraham is kind of asking a question mm. and implying, rather than stating, uh, what position Eliezer would um, would hold in that particular household at that particular time as his heir, seeing as he doesn't have a son.
0: You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. But the main question still exists there, which is like, what's the point of giving me anything if I don't have, if I don't have a success? Going to be inherited, particularly because like part of that promise was like fame and you know whatever. But it's like, oh, you'll become a great nation. It's like, Lord, I'm not seeing that play out before me.
1: Now, Eliezer was a righteous man. Mm. And we find that out later on in the passage when he goes to find a wife for Isaac. Mm. And we find that, you know, he's a man of prayer. Mm. Uh, often we just assume that anybody who wasn't a part of Abraham's family was an idolater. Mm. And that's just not the case. This was a righteous man that he'd found in Damascus, um, a Syrian man, and he was the foreman of the company. Mm. He was the 2IC. Uh, the and so Abraham's like, well, God, um, I don't have any children. We're past the age of having children, so uh, it's all going to Eliezer. And God's like, yeah, no, that's not how it's going to work. It's going to be through you, Abraham, which is interesting. You know, when we look at in the context of the interview that we just had with Baran where the whole um, story of Abimelech comes in where, you know, um. It it, it appears that, you know, if there's going to be this uh, miracle child that turns up, you know, somebody might be able to turn around and say, well, you know, that was um, uh, Abimelech's child because, you know, Sarah got married off to Abimelech and this is why God intervenes and God says to Abimelech, if you don't get rid of this woman, you're a dead man. Mm. It literally says that in the King James Version. God comes to him and says, Abimelech, you're a dead man. (laughs)
0: This town out big enough for the both of
1: us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just pretty wild what it what it says right there. Let me read it to you. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, "Behold, thou art a dead man." That's that's, <laughs> that's what it says. That's <laughs> so, so cool, gangster. <laughs> You know what's
0: even better? I can just imagine that in the English accent that was originally written in. Like, hmm, thou art a dead man. <laughs> Dude, that's so epic.
1: Oh, uh, dear. But anyway, this is, what's, this is what he's, he's, he's pointing out. He's like, okay, what about Eliezer? Uh, Keep going there. Read up for us through to verse 6.
0: The Bible continues on in verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him as righteousness because of his faith.
1: Okay, so this is a really good statement right there, mm. and a statement that the Apostle Paul, of course, you know, he builds a whole sermon on this in the Book of Romans. Mm. You know, that was accounted to Abraham because he believed God. Mm. You know, Hebrews and so forth. Uh, this is this is a passage that is repeated in the New Testament, and uh, this is righteousness by faith right here. So Abraham, mm. you know, God takes him outside and says, "Look up at the stars," and it's like, "Well, how many stars are there that are visible to the naked eye?" I don't even know how many that is. Uh, maybe you know the answer, how many is visible to the naked eye. Give us a call, or we'll send us a text and let us know. But it's a lot. Mm. But then if you look at how many descendants Abraham has had since then, it would have easily, easily been fulfilled. Yeah. Okay, so we've got uh, Bruce calling through with uh, some thoughts that he would like to share. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
2: I was thinking about governors. Um, well, like how God called Abraham away from his family. And I really believe it's like God's calling us away from the world, you know. Our family represents the world. Like when Adam and Eve sinned, they went became the family of the devil, really, because of sin. And he's calling us away from that to have this individual personal relationship with him, you know, and go wherever he leads. And then we actually then can have... then have unity with other people who make the same decision of coming away from the world and become part of God's family, you know. And, yeah, and that's sort of sort of how I see it. That's the, sort of like the covenant, the everlasting covenant that God's talking about.
1: It uh, reminds me of what the Bible says in Revelation 14 where it says, here are those that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They've come mm-hmm. out of the world and it's just like, well, wherever you go, Jesus, we're going to follow you.
2: Yeah, and we're, we're looking to him for for wisdom and understanding what to do you know it's actually it's interesting you know when you're talking to the other guy about abraham it's interesting that in that with abimelech or whatever his name was that god got him to pray for abimelech and his his um people were healed they could have children and also um sarah was healed she was able to have a child well it's interesting when you go into job the exact same thing happened to him He was to pray for those three guys who were giving him a hard time. This was after he was convicted of his own sin, you know, his own self-righteousness. And when he prayed for them, he was given twice as much back as what he got. And so really I think this is what God's trying to say. When we realize our own sinfulness, our own need of God, and we actually pray then for our enemies or, or the other people, God actually blesses us with them at the same time. Mm. And I think that it's like blessing us with, with Abraham was new life, you know, and it was about life. Um, and same with really Job. He got new children, new, new family back again
1: that 's a really uh, there 's a really great parallel that you 've brought out there with um, with those uh, couple of other individuals in the Bible who you know show something about the power of god 's forgiveness because you know yeah. Abraham, Abraham was at fault when he lies to Abimelech you know and, and uh, yeah. uh, but when Abraham is forgiven and Abraham prays, God is there to forgive and to cleanse, and he is only one prayer away from every single one of us. And he works in a remarkable way to turn that whole situation around to his glory and honor, um, and yeah. to the fulfillment of of his um, of of you know his purposes. No, fantastic. Yeah. Stuff, Bruce. Also,
2: think about it: when Abraham prayed for those guys, you know, and they healed, he got that son of promise. So when it came time for him to sacrifice, you know, the son, he will remember that experience was when I fell, you know, and I I was in this situation. And so this time he's saying, I'm not going to fall this time, not the third time, you know. Yes,
1: Mm. yes, absolutely. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show. Always love to uh, hear your thoughts as you contribute, and that was a great contribution there um, in relationship to the covenants and the way that God interacts with Mm. each one of us. Particularly when we, uh, you know, when God has made, it, made a covenant with us and we tend to mess it up so badly.
0: It brings out the point that we are not only perpetrators in sin, but victims as well. And God views everyone that way, uh, that, you know, they truly aren't enemies of God. Like, God is for everyone. Um, you know, the Bible says, you know, who can be against us if God is for us? God is truly for everyone. Um, the, the reality is, is just whether we choose him or not. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a lovely point that like, well, we don't need to build barriers to other people and. And sh- we like we need to shun the ideals of the world, but not the people who are caught in it, and that's kind of who Abraham is and what he represents that He comes from the world, like being called out of Ur wasn't wasn't necessarily a call out of false religion, even though he would have been practicing that it wasn't necessarily um yeah, a call away from evil, but a call away from just the world, the world as it was, without that influence of God. Into you know uh, creating this nation that he would go on to create uh, through his seed.
1: I really like what Bruce said about you know the power of intercessory prayer and mm. the way that you know both of these individuals were called to a ministry of intercessory prayer for their enemies. Um, because even though Job's friends were his friends, they were still his enemies. Um, <laughs> Abimelech was somebody mm. who Abraham was afraid of. Mm. So We can class them as em- enemies. And the Bible says that we are to pray for our enemies. And here, the, you know, you find that in both of these situations, the enemies were blessed, but the person who does the praying was blessed the most. Mm. And when we pray for our enemies, we are the ones who are blessed the most. 100%. Yeah, some really good thoughts there. Um, great stuff. Okay, where did we get up to? I'm. Um, we just I think we we got
0: to verse six he, uh, Abraham he believed, believed in the Lord and, and it, it was, was counted, counted to
1: he, righteousness that 's right so we've got this whole <laughs> um, example coming through here of righteousness by faith yes, and a lot of people say, oh you know righteousness by faith is a New Testament concept no this is an old Testament concept salvation <laughs> by faith yeah this is Genesis you mm. know noah Noah received grace in the eyes of the Lord Grace starts very very early on. The concept of grace is right there in Genesis chapter 3, when the mm. first covenant is made with Adam and Eve right at the very beginning. Grace and faith in God are critical to our salvation all the way through. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. And uh, we're going to get back into our Bible study. We've got a very strange kind of... Uh, Um, situation that takes place here as a part of this particular covenant. So let's go to Genesis chapter 15, and let's pick the story up here. Um, In verse 8.
0: But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it?
1: All right. So what does God say?
0: He says in verse nine, the Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon.
1: Okay, so a selection of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, any, guess keep going.
0: So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. Here you go. The sun was going down, and Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over, came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, "You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for four hundred years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth." As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction.
1: Okay, so if we we work our way down through this, uh, it's kind of a different kind of a sacrifice that you've Mm. got here. um, And uh, you've got God, you know, continues to speak to Abraham, or Abram as he's called in this passage. He adds some things to the covenant. He adds some promises to the covenant. Mm. He doesn't he a time prophecy? Yes. This would be incredibly. You would you would think this would be encouraging for the Israelites when they were in captivity. Mm. What you find is a little bit strange is that they have this particular promise that is given to them of God. And it's given to Abraham. They go into Jewish captivity and they forget the promise. Mm-hmm. You find a similar thing happening when they're happening when they go into Babylonian captivity where they're given this promise and then they forget the promise. And and Daniel's mm. one of the few people who discovers it's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, Jeremiah says we're going be in captivity here for seventy years. You know, this is much shorter than the Egyptian captivity mm. and the Egyptian enslavement. And so it um you know, it sort of makes us stop and ask the question well, what promises have been given to us as a mm. part of, you know, the covenant promises? And you've got some other parts of the covenant promises that are related to time, uh, because you've got, you know, this time prophecy here that, you know, Abraham's descendants forgot about while they were in captivity. And then you've got the time promise or the, the time prophecy that was given to Jeremiah that the people forgot about. Mm. in Babylon. But then you've got the time prophecy that ex- prophecies that extend out down to our modern era. Yes. You know, your 2300 day or your 2300 year prophecy talking about the beginning of the judgment coming in 1844 and then you've got, you know, down through those centuries what happens again? People forget about that time mm. prophecy until you're right down near the end of it and then they're reminded of it. Mm. And of course Moses reminds them of this prophecy in great detail. Um, And you find that it is fulfilled when the Israelites do return to the promised land. They return, you know, right on time. Mm. They are back there 400 years later, just as God had promised. And when you add these promises, you know, why add these promises to the covenant? Well, it's interesting because if you look at your 2,300 year prophecy, God says 70 weeks or 490 years are cut off for your people, uh, you know, finish transgression, make an end of sins, bring in reconciliation for iniquity, um, to um, seal the prophecy and anoint the most holy. And so what happens is that God adds these prophecies to the covenant to seal the covenant. Mm. They become a seal of the covenant because you know centuries are going to pass millennia are going to pass, and as a result of that, it's going to be very easy for people to be like, well, where's God? We haven't seen God act for so long, and he made all these promises so long ago. But when those promises are attached to prophecies that are historically verifiable, yes, where we can go back and say, yes, this prophecy happened, it was fulfilled, it happened just exactly as God said it would happen. What that does is it gives us faith and confidence in the prophecies that are yet to come. Mm. And the return of Christ is an integral part. Yes. The integral part to the covenant. This is what the covenant is all about. It's all about preparing us for the return of Jesus.
0: Yeah, well it's you know to look at the return of Christ as well and see that man, this is an event that has never happened before that's right, you know Christ showing up in the clouds, and I feel like for for the generation that we live in that you know is very far between these prophecies you know it's like oh we've we've never seen God work in this way. Um, There are many people around the world who experience God and see Him work in all different kinds of ways, but to see Him coming in the clouds, the world being fully destroyed, maybe uh, Elijah's generation could relate to that. Maybe Noah's generation could relate to that. But for us, we're just like.
1: There's actually very few generations that could relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. When you stop and think about it, you know, God acting corporately Mm. because God has been working personally the majority of the time.
0: But the reality is, is like to give this validity, God, Oh, God is so smart. He's like, I'm going to give you testable, supernatural evidence so that you can believe that I am who I say I am and that my promises that I make to you will come true. And that's why, you know, as Christians, we need to put so much emphasis on how important the Bible is.
1: That's right. Like with you
0: know this this philosophy, like the Bible isn't a book just full of good ideas. Um, it's not an ancient dusty book. Uh, you know, it's not it's not like uh, the documents of. And this isn't to to belittle any other religion, but it's but they themselves know that you know, for example, Buddhism. It's not a, do, a, a document full of philosophy. No, these are real supernatural things that we can test and verify today. That give us a hope of the future of something incredibly amazing to something that we want to see happen. Like, I want to see Jesus come back. I want Jesus to come back because of how amazing he is uh, and because of what that means to me, which is an end of sin, an end of death, an end of pain, an end of suffering, and an eternity with God.
1: You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith
0: FM, positively different. We have a question of the day. Question of the day. Alright, our question of the day is, ooh, kind of a hectic one uh, by, this is a, kind of from two different people, Chris and Owen, and it is, doesn't the rainbow celebrate sexual diversity? Isn't that what they are teaching children these days? And the other one we have from Owen is, uh, what about the rainbow that circles God's throne?
1: Okay, so this is, uh, when you put these two questions together, it actually makes for some really interesting uh, discussions. And so it's interesting to see in, you know, modern day how um, groups supporting sexual diversity have actually tried to sue uh, creationists for using the rainbow as a symbol for creationism, Um, which is pretty wild stuff. But... Uh, because they're like, you know, that's our symbol, and, you know, we've got a trademark on that. Of course, it's not going to go anywhere because it's a very ancient symbol that's been around forever. But let's look at it by beginning with the rainbow that is around God's throne. The rainbow mm. around God's throne is an emerald rainbow. That's a green rainbow. That rainbow is not just a symbol of God as a covenant keeping God, but is a symbol of God who is the originator of all life. So, green is the color of life and so God is the originator of life, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, does that rainbow symbolise sexual diversity? No, it doesn't. It actually symbolises the very opposite of sexual diversity because there is only one way that life comes about. There's only one way that God creates new life through human beings, Mm. and that is not through sexual diversity. That is between a man and a woman. So, you know, to choose the rainbow is actually the wrong symbol to choose if you want to choose a symbol of sexual diversity because the rainbow is a symbol of life and life does not come from sexual diversity. Mm. Life only comes from uh, one kind of way of of doing sex. Now, when it comes to... Uh, the multicolored rainbow. And of course, we find that, you know, back in Genesis chapter nine, where God says, you know, I set my bow in the cloud. This will be a sign between me and you that I will never flood the earth, uh, destroy the earth by a flood again. Okay. So here, what God is doing is he is c- proclaiming himself as the creator God. So what kind of a symbol is this that he is actually using when he proclaims himself as? the creator god well he's creating he's proclaiming himself as the creator god who created this world who created life and who created our ability to be able to reproduce as a part of that creation and a creator god who created man and woman a creator god who created man and woman being married and having children and populating the earth that's what the rainbow actually symbolizes uh, it actually symbolizes the complete opposite of what it is commonly used as a symbol today. It's interesting that the uh, the, the rainbow was not first um, you know taken by the gender diversity group, it was first taken by the new age. So New Age was using the rainbow as a symbol um, of spiritualism for decades before it was taken over by the uh, the group promoting sexual diversity. Now, does the rainbow symbolize diversity? Of course it does. It's got lots of different uh, colors in it, and what it is showing that God is a lover of diversity within what he has created. And so, if you're going to talk about sexual diversity, you know, sex is one of those things that God has created for human beings to enjoy within the marriage covenant, and there are lots of different ways of enjoying it within the marriage covenant. There are actually few things in the Bible that says that are prohibitions on this. And so God loves us, He cares for us, and you know, He wants us to enjoy sex. Sex is a great thing. God is super positive about sex. In fact, there's an entire book in the Bible that is dedicated to sex and having a great sex life. A book of essentially what is erotica in the Bible. It's called the Song of Solomon. And that's why God puts it there because God is concerned, you know, sex is a major part of what it means to be a human being. And so God gave us a whole book on how to have a good sex life.
2: Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1 800 Faith FM.